0: Once again, good morning. As uh, Shang made mention, my name is Joe Brown. I'm one of the pastors around here. Uh, this morning, I get the honor and the privilege to be able to read the Word of God and, uh, and expound upon it for a few minutes. So as you know, if you've been around here, you know we've been going through the book of Romans, and we are now at the point where we are at Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, uh, I'm going to read it. It's going to be up on the screens behind me. It's printed in your bulletin. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get that out. Okay. Um, sorry, that was, that was really snarky. I didn't mean it to be snarky. I just... All right. Romans, Romans 5, 12 through 21. This is the Word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, for your beauty, for the fact that we know and can hear your revelation and know more about ourselves, know more about you, know more about your creation. Help us this morning by your Holy Spirit to apply your word to our lives. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Um, Back in 1981, 1982, two gangs got together. They were at odds with each other. They hated each other. They went at it to, uh, to destroy one another. They gathered together in an unnamed city, in an unnamed dark alley, and instead of everybody in the two gangs fighting, they each... I guess the, the gang leaders came forward, and they uh, one gang member got his right hand, the other one his left, and put their hands together, and they tied them together. And then in the other hand, they had a switchblade, a knife, in the other hand, to fight each other to the death. This is the setting of the social critic and musician Michael Jackson's video, Beat It, And for reasons that only the 80s can explain, Michael Jackson's dancing brought peace and reconciliation to both of the gangs. The reason I bring this up is because that's amazing, and also because in some ways in this text, we have two gangs. We have a gang of Adam and a gang of Christ. That might be a little too crass, I understand, that's that's, that's a little weird. So I'm going to go with Thomas Goodwin, he was an old 17th century English Puritan, he was Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, and he said when he was looking at this passage that we have two men by whom the entire universe hangs on. You're either hanging on to Adam, or you're hanging on by Christ, his is quote, these two, in God's account, standing for all the rest. Or if you think back on that great battle between the puny, wimpy, bread-and-cheese delivery boy David and the wonderful, powerful, strong, blood warrior Goliath, as they gathered together in the Valley of Elah, it wasn't just because one guy hated one guy. No, it was an army. The Philistines against the people of God, the Israelites, they they were at war with one another, so they elected two champions to come forward to battle together. If you want to know how that ends, go read 1 Samuel 17. Or when you think back in Exodus and Leviticus, you see the high priest and he has 12 stones on his breastplate that he wore when he was in temple, and each each of the stones had the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was representing the whole people of God. When he would go in on the Day of Atonement, he was representing everybody. He wasn't doing it just for himself. He was representing everybody. Paul speaks about this in another text in 1 Corinthians 15 when He's talking about what happens when we die. People are really confused. I don't know what to do when people die. And so he said, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Christ, verse 22 for as in adam all die so also in christ shall all be made alive in other words you are either in christ or you are in adam theologians call this the federal head they're the federal head of one and of a people uh, that they represent and that has great ramifications and applications for our lives Today. But I don't want you to, I don't want us to get too clinical because I want you to see in this argumentation that Paul is laying out in Romans that he's not talking about Adam. If you're reading Romans 5 up to this point, what you hear, what Paul is saying is he's saying, Christ is better. Christ is so much more abundant and wonderful. There's this problem with sin that Jesus has to deal with. Sin, Adam brought in sin, and he starts talking about that. That's what's happening in this text. But Jesus is so much better. Guys, I just explained to you how the argumentation of the whole text went. Jesus is so much better. He defeated sin. Sin, Adam brought in sin. Let me explain sin a little bit more. But don't worry, because Jesus is so much better. If you forgot everything else, forget everything else I say. I want you to remember that. Jesus is so much better. He is so much more. Um, uh, St. John Chrysostom, I put, uh, you know, early church father, fourth century, he said when he was talking about this text as the best physicians always take great pains to discover the source of diseases and go to the very fountain of mischief, sin, so does the blessed Paul. He's going to sin. He's talking about this problem of sin. And he's talking about Jesus not, he's talking about sin, not to draw our attention to sin, but to draw our attention to Jesus. I'm about to spend a few minutes talking about sin. It's going to get heavy, it's going to get hard, it's going to get awkward, but I don't want you to lose sight that the reason why Paul brings all this up is it's important for us to understand it so that we can look to Jesus. Amen? So we're going to, amen. So we're going to look to two kingdoms, two uh, people, two federal heads, the kingdom of Adam, the kingdom of sin, and the kingdom of Christ, kingdom of life. And as I do it, I'm going to talk about four aspects of each one, the origin, The spread, the cost, and the weight of each one. So, let's look at the origin of the kingdom of sin. We've already talked about it. It's Adam. Verse 14, the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. We've all been caught up into Adam's imputed sin. We all belong to Adam's family, not the Adam's family, that great sitcom. We all belong to Adam's family. Um. Sinclair Ferguson says, our family name is Sinner. My name is Joe Brown, but really I should just say my name is Joe Sinner. It has been bequeathed to us. It's who we belong to. Um, As I was thinking about this this week, my mind went to uh, the Yule family from To Kill a Mockingbird. Do you remember this? Uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, the great uh, movie based on the book by Harper Lee. Uh, The Yule family, uh, this is how Harper Leeds describes it. If you don't even know the the movie or the book, I I, I think you can understand, I think you know these people. Every town the size of Macom had families like the Yules. No economic fluctuations changed their status. People like the Yules lived as guests of the county in prosperity as well as in the depths of of a depression. No truant officer could keep their numerous offspring in school. No public health officer could free them from congenital defects, various worms, and the diseases indigenous to filthy surroundings. That description, if you don't know, might lead you to some sympathy. You might say, oh, that that sounds really horrible. I would have sympathy. Until you meet Bob. Bob, the father of the Yule family. He was a raging racist. A horrible alcoholic, abusive, a poacher, a mocker, a violent man, at least an attempted murderer. So near the end of the book, Sheriff Tate says to Atticus, the protagonist, Atticus Finch, Mr. Finch, there's just some kinds of men you have to shoot before you can say hi to them. Even then, they ain't worth the bullet it takes to shoot them. Yule is one of them. Bob Yule was the worst. But at least in the drama of the first half of the book, Bob Yule isn't really that important. The drama, the, the one who caused a lot of problems was his daughter, Mayella. She was unloved, she was abused, she was confused, she was uneducated, she makes some reprehensible decisions. Does some horrible stuff. I won't tell you what she does. You should go read the book or go watch the Gregory Peck movie. She is responsible for her actions. She is culpable for what she did. But if you know who her father is, you can kind of understand. That's what it is when it comes to sin in our lives. We are responsible. We are culpable for all of our sin. But if you know our father, Adam, you kind of understand it, you kind of see it, sin is here in this world and it's in my heart because of who my father is, Adam. See it spread in verse 12, uh, all is mentioned twice, all men three times in the whole section, all sinned once, it is everywhere. Remember uh, Psalm 51 Oh God, I was born in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Theologians call this the doctrine of original sin. It's just talking about the the human condition of fallenness. We have a fallen, corrupt nature. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We are not... Let me say that again. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. C.S. Lewis talks about sin as, or sin, evil. Evil is a parasite, it is not an original thing. Or as G.K. Chesterton, when someone wrote to him and someone said, wrote him the letter and said, hey, what's wrong with the world? And his response was, dear sir, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. See its cost, verses 14, 17, 21. You see this refrain death reigned. Uh, Sonia read just moments ago that passage from that hard, hard passage from Genesis 3 about the fall of man, about Adam and Eve making. Some really terrible, selfish decisions. And because of that, if you just jump two chapters later, Genesis 5, the death chapter, it just says, so-and-so lived, and he died. So-and-so lived, and he died. So-and-so lived, and he died. The people who read that text would, would see the connection. They would see that death has come in, and it reigned. Who reigns? A king reigns. Death reigns. How many people here feel often that sin, evil, death, isn't just a part of life, but it rains. I know sometimes I do. Death is the inseparable follower and companion of sin. The sin that found a point of entry through Adam's trespass exerted its power over all of Adam's offspring. You and I walk around with death shrouds on, death clothes on, the clothes that you put on when you die, they, put you, they lay you nicely in the casket, and you're wearing your death clothes. You and I walk around with our death clo- shro- shrouds on. And lastly, with this kingdom, I want you to see its weight. In verses 16 and 18, you see the word condemnation mentioned. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The effect of sin on humanity was all-consuming. Uh, Christopher Watkins wrote a, a, a great book uh, that was just published recently, Biblical Critical Theory. He said, the immediate and striking effect of sin on Genesis 3 is that a lightning bolt of alienation cleaves apart this matrix of relationships. And he recounts, like seven different ways, if you read Genesis 3, you see this alienation that comes in. It's not just death that reigns, it's not just you and I making bad decisions, but we see that we are now alienated from God and we flee from Him. God is alienated from us and angry with our sin. We are alienated from one another and we experience shame. We're alienated from our bodies, from each other, from the rest of creation. Creation itself is alienated from itself. Wow, Joe, can you just knock it off? I'm barely awake because of daylight saving time. Why are you talking about all this? Uh, The reason why we have to spend time on this is because the world doesn't want to think about this. And, And if we're honest, we don't want to think about this. I don't. The secular worldview tells us to stop talking about sin because we're just being too gloomy. Focus instead on the great dignity and beauty of humanity. But, as Christopher Watkins points out, to lament human wretchedness does not denigrate the human condition, it ennobles it. Or as Blaise Pascal wrote in the 17th century, it is wretched to know that one is wretched, but there is greatness in knowing one is wretched. The Christian can look at sin and rightly hate it because it's not the way it's supposed to be. The other, the secular worldview, wants us to make do with what we got. It's a sinful world, so we just need to do better. I mean, it, that's, that's just morality. That's just religion. If you want to deal with the world, ignore sin, and just think, well, this is just the best we got, so let's just deal with it. I got some great podcasts that you can listen to that can tell you how to be a good, you know, better human being, be a better neighbor. It, it, maybe some of you need to listen to that. That's not a bad idea. But all that is is just morality. All that is is just religion. It's just helping us gird ourselves up to be better and ignore the problem and just say, well, the world's hard, but we'll just ignore it. I mean, the problem with that, outside of the fact that we st- even if we ignore it, we still have the problem, the problem with that is you have nowhere to go when something really horrible happens. You have nowhere to go when death does come and rain on us. It it has no power when we have true abuse and trauma in our lives. The Christian worldview says this is a reality. Sin is a reality, and it is not the way it's supposed to be. Christianity says sin is here because it's a perversion of creation. You can't ignore it. You can't run away from it. The death shroud weighs heavy on us. In a few seconds, I want to talk about the good news of this kingdom of Jesus. But before we remove this death shroud from us, I want you to feel its weight. I want you to feel the fact that sin is a real problem in your life, in my life, in your neighbors' lives, in your kids' lives, in your parents' lives. Sin is a real problem. It is a death shroud that hangs over us. So where's the good news? Let's look at the kingdom of Jesus as Paul describes it in Romans 5. And again, I want to look at the origin, the spread, the cost, and the weight. The origin. If you read earlier in Romans 5, 1 through 11, you see the origin of the kingdom of Jesus is not just Jesus. It is the Trinitarian God. It is God himself, his very being, who looks at his creation and sees the brokenness And he says, I'm going to fix it. It is undeserved. Where Adam's sin was earned, you see the word trespass. Adam earned it. Adam did it. Adam trespassed. He did it. That is an act that was earned. It is a selfish act that brought about sin and death into the world. Christ's kingdom is gracious and unearned. Sinclair Ferguson said, Jesus came into the world to reverse what Adam did, and he did it by representing his people. Jesus comes in and reveals, the ima- he is the image of the invisible God, inaugurating a kingdom built on the immeasurable riches of the grace of Christ, lavished upon his people. Brothers and sisters, friends, undeserved, Jesus removes your death shroud undeserved. Jesus removes your death shroud. But see it spread. Where Adam's act led to death, Christ's led to life. And not just the opposite of death, but full and abundant life. The kind of life that is abundant, that is much more. Verse 15, the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. It goes deeper, farther, higher. In my silly little illustration of of the two gang leaders battling together, you might get the impression that it is, that Jesus and Adam are of equal power. Do not think that at all. Jesus' kingdom is much more. It is much more abundant. It is much more powerful. Christopher Watkins, again, uh, from his book, he says uh, that God's economy is built upon a logic of superabundance a lavish, gracious, loving paradigm of excess. This is going beyond the call of duty, beyond what is right and proper, beyond what could reasonably be demanded on a ledger of credit and debt. Uh, a couple years ago, there was another movie that came out. If, if you know anything about me, you know I'm just going to do a lot of pop cultural references. Sorry. Uh, a movie came out called The uh, The Avengers. It was a Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I'm not going to spoil it too much other than to say that at the, it's a two-parter. Other, the, here's the one spoiler. At the end of part one, the bad guy wins. At the end of part one, the bad guy wins. And so all those of us who like were really excited and, reading and watching these movies, we were loving it, we were excited about it, we were like, how, how in the world are the Avengers going to solve this problem? Tune in next week, and you'll see how, whatever. Uh, and we didn't know, and it was, it, we're just trying to figure it out. What, what's going to happen? How are the Avengers going to solve this problem? The bad guy won at the end of part one. In part two, the refrain that is said over and over again by different Avengers, when they were confronted with the problem, and they were going to try to solve the problem of the fact that at the end of part one, bad guy won, they all basically made a solemn vow, and the solemn vow they made was, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. The Trinitarian God looks at our problem. He doesn't enter into a contract and say, well, okay, if you just do a little bit better, then maybe I'll come in and fix it. No. The Trinitarian God says, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Takes. The Iron Man could have said, you know what, I'm just gonna like pay like $10 million and spend like five years and do all this stuff. I'm just gonna I'm gonna do a lot and I'm gonna solve this problem. Or or Black Widow is gonna say, I'm just gonna do everything in my power. I'm gonna go get all my widows and we're just gonna do all this stuff and we're gonna solve all this problem. We're gonna do it. They could have done that. They could have said that. No, what they said was, whatever it takes. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He does whatever it takes to solve this problem. And I hope you see the cost. Because the cost of the kingdom of Christ is free to us, but it is very costly. The free gift of God is free to us, but it is very costly. Verse 18, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price. That price is Jesus Christ on the cross. He died. He did whatever it took to save his people. Undeserved, Jesus did whatever it took to remove your death shroud. And lastly, I hope and I want you to see the weight of the kingdom of Christ. Verses 15 and 20, abounded. I hope you saw that when I was reading it. Verses 15 and 17, much more. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. I'm not trying to build an argument to win points. I'm not trying to, you know, have like good logic here in what I'm saying. I want you to understand It is so much more. It is so much more than whatever sin or struggle that we have in this life. Jesus is so much more. I know that there are people in this room that feel like they're treading on water. You know, that maybe feel like living in the kingdom of Christ is just a burden too heavy to bear. Maybe it would be better just to, like, scrap this whole thing. I've I've experienced... uh, you know, trauma, I've experienced issues with other people. I just want to get out of here. I'm just going to go. I understand that. I understand. There are people in this room that feel that you're treading on water. As Jack Miller says, no matter how deep I have dug the hole of my sinful life, God has gone deeper in the giving of His Son. No matter how deep, and there are some in this room that I know that have dug deep. Deep. There are some in this room that know that they've dug deep, and there are some in this room that think they've dug, you know, their life is pretty good, they're just a shallow sin, but no, you're deep as well. No matter how deep of a pit you put yourself in because of sin, Jesus goes deeper. Jesus is much more. The Trinitarian God saw his beautiful creation. And saw that it was corrupted and brought low by sin and death. And when he sees injustice, when he sees suffering, brought about by the sin that originated with Adam and carried on through all generations. And even when you and I were blind and undeserving, he did whatever it took to die our deserved death and to rise again. Not just to remove our sin. That would be amazing in and of itself, but to go even farther, so much more, to give us Christ's righteousness. Friends, I hope you see in the la- uh, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So here's what I want you to hear today. If you are in Christ, you didn't deserve it. If you are in Christ, you didn't earn it. If you are in Christ, you didn't pay for it. There's no reason why anyone in this room should ever think that they deserve to be in in Christ. If you are in Christ, there is absolutely nothing that should lead you to pride. But I hope you see, if you are in Christ, He has removed the weight of your death shrouds and He has clothed you in the righteous clothing of Christ, His righteousness. So, brothers and sisters, if you hear nothing else from me this morning, please hear this. If you are in Christ, there is so much more. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so much more. And I pray that you help us to believe that and trust that today and always. We pray in your name, Jesus' name, amen.